Broadcasting live from addressing your cousin as cousin while on the phone. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother. And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. And today we're really, we're, we're talking romancing the stone in, in preparation for Argyle coming out next week. But this is a all-time classic. I'm very happy that we're doing this. This is my first time watching it for this show. And I have many, many, many things to say about 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 everything. It's 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 a whirlwind. Well, fortunately, Seamus, you're going to get to start right away because the one real piece of news that we have this week is talking about the massive layoffs that have been going on in the video game industry, and that is actually going to be part of our pop culture reference segment this week. So we're going to skip over that for now, come back to it after we talk Romancing the Stone. Let's do it. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about Robert Zemeckis' 1984 adventure romp, Romancing the Stone. Seamus, I know you just mentioned up top that this is your first time seeing this movie. Uh, This is a childhood favorite for me, so I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. I thought this was a blast. I kind of I kind of tipped my hand a little bit at the intro of this episode, but I thought it was incredible. It was very funny. I thought the action was a lot of fun. This is the youngest I've ever seen Michael Douglas and he is so unbelievably handsome. I he appears on screen his first appearance and I was like, I don't know about this cuz I was like I could still just see like the Ant-Man 2 face of Michael Douglas, but then as so- as soon as it got into a little more of the light I was just like, oh, wow. Un- unbelievable. He-, he was fantastic. Kathleen Turner is so funny and good in this. Also, perhaps the youngest I've ever seen Danny DeVito, and he is just like, he's barely a part of the actual plot, but he's just like, he- they cut away to him, and he's just hilarious physically and and with his actual dialogue. It- it's fantastic. I-, I really genuinely enjoy this. The soundtrack was incredible. <laughs> I've been listening to that main theme for this movie. It's it's amazing. Alan Silvestri, beautiful, beautiful stuff. I don't know. I, I was just so caught off guard because I really didn't do any real research. I know I knew why we were doing it for Argyle, and I, I kind of had a vague idea with Zemeckis going in here, but I, I was just, I loved it. I'm a big fan now. Well, I, I also think it's interesting to see, like, you were talking about how young everybody is, and this is one of Zemeckis's earliest films. Um, I think this is his third feature film after Can't Buy Me Love and Used Cars with Kurt Russell, which is also a great movie that's, which you haven't seen, I think. I have not. I, I have wanted to, trust me. And Can't Buy Me Love is called I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's not Can't Buy Me Love. Can't Buy Me Love is a movie with Robert Downey Jr., but Ron Beatles song. That I'm, <laughs> no, I'm calling it. it right now. You caught it. You caught it. So I think you can see a lot of the hallmarks of Zemeckis's later adventure film because this is like really the first true adventure film that he made, and boy, is it an adventure film. And seeing him pairing up, of course, with Alan Silvestri, who you mentioned already, who would then compose the greatest scores of Zemeckis's career, mm-hmm. including Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Plus, he's got literally, like, the some of the font is in, like, the Back to the Future 
credits font, which I think <laughs> is really interesting too. So overall, I think that this is a, like a really outstanding adventure experience that stands on its own because not only does it have super charming leads and its own personality, and it's shot really well by Dean Cundy. I think we would be remiss not to mention that. But in an era where so many things were cast in the shadow of Indiana Jones, this movie was actually written before Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. So even though it's it's obviously coming out three years after Raiders and probably some of the things like having Michael Douglas wear a hat for a lot of the runtime could have been influenced by the popularity of Raiders, it really has its own identity as a piece of adventure media and a piece of like treasure hunting adventure media. Yeah, I... <sighs> It's it. There was a lot of stuff about this movie where it, it for for a minute it almost seemed like the treasure hunting was taking a back seat to a lot of other like very big adventure style events that were taking place, and then it you know it it dev it definitely all wrapped back up into itself with the you know following clues and maps and and all the danger and and the adventure and swinging from things. But it almost feels like the first adventure film ever written in a lot of ways. It's like so. It's <laughs> uh, like. Everything that I know about all the other, like, cornier adventure things is being done in this movie with a straight face, and I'm, like, buying all of it, even though it is still, like, very goofy and almost cartoony in a few spots, but, you know, not over, over the top. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's doing it with a straight face. I would say it's very winking, because the entire crux of the movie, down to the name, is it's a romance novel. This movie is a romance novel. And, like, she is a romance novelist that gets stuck in the plot of a romance novel. So it has the corniness of a ro- Like, you know, he's the perfect, gruff, you know, adventurer. And it is he isn't exactly what she would expect the perfect, gruff adventurer to be. But in the end, you know... We, we won't get into too many spoilers, but I think the that it's all kind of right there in the title of, of course, the treasure hunting is taking a backseat because what the movie is really about is the dynamic between the two leads. It's romancing the mm, stone. Mm. It's not following the map to the stone. Yeah, I, I guess straight, doing it with a straight fist was the wrong way to say that. It's like, I'm loving everything that's happening, even though it's like any, any other movie with all of this stuff that could be done today, I'd be like rolling my eyes but when the corny big sweeping romantic moments are happening even though it is winking at me at, at the audience it's like i'm all i'm 100 invested in how you know big and sweeping and romantic everything is i don't know i i i guess i don't have a lot of movies that would do that for me i guess this feels like kind of the perfect mix of all of that together to to deliver it to me in a way that i actually love everything about it i totally agree and i think again zemeckis is really finding his footing mm -hmm. in this one because i've never seen i want to hold your hand but used cars while fun has a very inconsistent tone and very strange pacing and he's he's alleviating a lot of those problems in the in this film and i think it has a like an incredibly consistent tone and even though there are definitely some jokes that are a little bit dated i don't think they take you out of the movie as much as a lot of jokes from movies of this era would a lot like some of the jokes in the back to the future trilogy maybe some of those aren't <laughs> yeah. super cool today but there's they're a product of a bigger 
thing that is is loved for a reason. And I think weirdly they both part of the reason they both get away with it a little bit other than the fact that they're inherently charming and don't dwell on those moments is because that both of them are actively engaging with a bygone era back mm-hmm. to the future much more literally right like the entire crux of back to the future is what if you took a kid from the 80s <laughs> yes. and put him in the 50s he wouldn't like it and <laughs> this is what if you took the pastiche of an era that has long gone away and in reality never existed but overlaid it onto once again like she is not only a fish out of water in that she's this like kind of uptight new yorker in the Colombian jungle but that also she is a woman of the a modern woman of the 80s that has been thrust into a world that as far as the movie is characterizing it has not caught up with the modern era and Michael Douglas personifies that as like he doesn't know that the Doobie Brothers broke up he is a man (laughs) out of time yes yes. we should probably just because of the direction that our conversation is heading probably get into spoilers soon but I feel like we should know that Danny DeVito is just super good in this. I know we talked about it about Tom, <laughs> but this is this is up there with Matilda as like one of the first movies I remember seeing Danny DeVito in and just being utterly charmed by him. I hadn't seen this movie since I'd seen it like on videotape up until maybe two or three years ago when The Lost City came out, which is mm-hmm. very transparently inspired by this movie and is almost kind of a remake of this movie and i the parts i remembered the most vividly were not like it it wasn't the treasure hunting it wasn't the adventure it wasn't even really the leads the parts of this movie i remembered the most in that you know probably over 10 year period was the danny devito parts because he is so (laughs) funny steals the show and that's that's what he's best at that Danny DeVito he's a comic genius and actually a very very good actor so it's it's hard not to give him his props when he shows up in his prime acting days he is absolutely and then I think it's also worth noting I don't believe that you've seen this that late 80s sometimes so like a few years after this Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and Danny DeVito would all re-team for the Danny DeVito-directed The War of the Roses. So that chemistry, like, obviously the three of them got along, and I think they all have really good chemistry that then carries on into into that film. That is, I def, I mean, that's awesome. I definitely didn't know about that, but now I would love to check that out. That's awesome. That is a Looney Tunes movie. I mean, Danny DeVito really takes these, like, Looney Tunes premises and but he directs them like he's brian de palma he's such a good director (laughs) though everything i've ever yeah that is that is the truth about danny devito but i think we should officially mark the spoiler threshold for romancing the stone yes where shall we begin A, a kidnapping plot has never been so funny i don't know this is so this is so all over the place but it is also under the guise of like you know her sister is gonna maybe get killed if she doesn't do all this stuff it's very well i guess it started and the janitor in her building got stabbed to death and i was like oh this is gonna be a darker movie maybe i didn't realize that it was gonna be like this and then it quickly unraveled in front of me well it's a very pulpy even more than something like indiana jones i think in some ways in that indiana jones's violence sometimes it's pretty visceral but it's usually not, I think, like, dwelled on in the same way. And it's 
entire tone is more like mm. brought down. Whereas in this, you have you can go one minute from like Danny DeVito doing silly slapstick of like falling <laughs> off the side of the pol- of the police desk into a man getting brutally stabbed to death. Like like really quickly, those things can turn around. Yeah, I'm trying to think now, besides the stabbing, it's really only a lot of, like, trading gunshots in the jungle. No one really, no one's ever really shot, I I don't think. It's just a lot of, like, big white plume gunshots right up until a man's arm is ripped off by a, <laughs> by a snapper, you know? That, that guy gets destroyed. Look at those snappers. <laughs> It's so brutal. They they and then I mean this is just a single moment, but I like winced when she whacks his like stump with the nail board. Oh in that, yeah, in that it's horrible. Scene. That's just the, my own little single moment of of just uncomfortableness about this movie. That is the other thing I remembered really vividly, other than Danny DeVito was like as a kid being like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, like... comes out of nowhere. Really, you know, they're having a standoff, things are going down, but like, jeez, Louise, that's a lot. I don't know if I must have seen this movie around the same time as Indiana Jones. I don't. I would imagine it was after Indiana Jones, but I couldn't tell you that for sure it was a you know it was a family movie night we got Mm -hmm. it from the library on videotape on a friday night we watched it and it was a great time but it's not just that a guy gets his arm bit off by an alligator which is already crazy but then that so much of the rest of the third act revolves around we have to get the contents of this man's hand out of the stomach of this of this animal oh is really funny and also upsetting (laughs) Like, there's that, they do that whole bit where I can't tell if it's supposed to be tense or goofy, where Michael Douglas is, like, trying to drag the striped gator back onto land. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, Joan is getting, like, attacked with a knife on the tower. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a very, I don't know, totally that single moment is very all over the place. Which, again, I think is, we can rightfully criticize that definitely to a point, but at the same time, I think it's so ingrained in the movies, like... Get it? It's like a romance novel, and yeah, and, and yeah, that. yeah. And then that 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 moment becomes like a moment where she thinks that she is empowered, like she's empowered, like the heroine of her romance novel, uh, because it's, it mirrors almost exactly the really fun western opening that we get at the beginning of this movie, and then totally turns the tables on her, and then through what she learned from Michael Douglas, is able to hold her own a little bit more in real life. So it is it is making a distinction between mm. the romance novel and the events of what's going on in, in the universe of the film. Also, I've got to call it out, that split diopter shot with her in the snappers. Yes, where she's like, she's being pinned down on the top of the cage that's holding them, and it's like, oh, yeah, that was masterfully done. They only cut to it, like, a couple times, but I was eating that up. It's a really good shot, and, I mean, again, Dean Cundy, split diopter, man knows what he's doing. I think Robert (laughs) Zemeckis is learning what he's doing in this, and that the third act is a pretty compelling little action sequence i think considering the fact that it's really pretty tame by even the standards of the rest of the movie i think there are a couple of little moments also that i think that this movie walks a really fine line where it's not super problematic but it's a little problematic in the way that it portrays the colombian people 
It doesn't make Colombia look like a super great place to go, which, you know, is part of the exotic setting of Sure, thing. sure. But I mean, it also isn't, for the most part, engaging in super egregious stereotyping, or it's, I think it's almost like the, the, the normal people that live in Colombia are almost not featured enough in this to be problematic. Yeah, I'm watching this, I was almost like, this is Valverde, basically. Like, this is just, like, yeah. insert South American country in an 80s adventure movie where there's, like, a military police force and a gangster, you know, military force, mm-hmm. and they are clashing. It's just, like, there's a criminal element, and then there <laughs> yes, is yes. a, which is typical of the time, a, a militaristic element. So it kind of makes sense, I think. But you have little moments of the normal people of Colombia getting to be a little bit more human and I think that that like I love when the bus driver just breaks the door clean off the bus as he's leaving after they <laughs> yes. get in the crash I that cracks me up <laughs> Yeah, I, there's also, there's this running gag where, like, everybody just kind of speaks English and is, like, very fed up with Michael Douglas and being like, do you speak English? That's a very, that's yeah. a, it's, there's a strange thing of that, but then also, it's seemingly nobody really speaks English when... Except when I really love the drug dealer, he cracks me up. Juan is... Juan. The funniest stuff. I knew the second... They walked into that town, and they were getting, like, eyeballed cowboy town style. I was like, they're going to know her books. They're going to be like, I love your books. And the fact that it they, they got, like, that was my guess, and then they got me, kind of. And then they also brought it all the way back around with Juan being like, these are the books I read you guys on Sundays. <laughs> I love it's that fl- whole gang. It, have you watched, how much of Barry have you watched? Uh, two seasons of Barry. So I feel like it has a little bit of, like, the way NoHo Hank treats his guys to it. (laughs) That's exactly right. That is an incredible... I did not not think of NoHo Hank, but now that is exactly what it is. Just, like, weirdly cheerful and nice. Like, you love Mm -hmm. this guy who you know is, like, a bad dude. Like, he murders people for sure. But you're like, oh, I love him. I love him. He's great. And also, can't you hear NoHo Hank being like, Yeah, the Xerox machine is broken. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, man. Oh, that's good. Gushing over the books that you have. Take this copy. I have ten others or whatever he says. To, that That is beautiful. Love it. I wish he stuck around more. I know that would have thrown off the balance of this mm-hmm. movie a little bit more unless... If Danny DeVito was in the movie more, then I think Juan could have stuck around. Like, they would have been each other's yeah. adversary. But, but Danny DeVito's just like, he's just got a... He's just got a line on their whole adventure he's just in the background like i said before well i really wish that Juan got more of a goodbye i think because this is actually the perfect you brought up the two perfect things to talk about this where Juan is dropping them off at the hotel and you see that in the background while in a very well blocked scene i really love it's all one shot where danny devito is in the foreground having one of his great mm. phone scenes of which he has several throughout <laughs> this film and then when he, kathleen turner is approaching he hangs up and then we, she becomes the focal point of the shot and it the camera circles around her to to bring her more up close and come kind of behind her a little bit and i like i think that's a moment of like Cundi and zemeckis i'm like yeah guys you're doing <laughs> you're figuring it out you're doing a great job <laughs> they had a good day that day on set they were they were they were happy with that one absolutely i was gonna bring up zach norman as ira his cousin and maybe <laughs> yes. the funniest thing i've ever seen i, I was like 
I was like really like gut laughing with the I'm going to send the boat back for you bit, which is really only like 30 <laughs> seconds. But then they cut back to it and he's sailing away on the bigger ship and he's like, I'll send it back. I I couldn't believe how much I loved that. That was so funny. That is, I think, one of the, the you are aware that there is a second movie of this. Yes. You know that I definitely didn't know that, Garrett. Are you kidding me? Wait, for real? The Jewel of the Nile, baby. What? Are, wait, oh my god. Wait, so is Ira and Ralph, Danny DeVito, are they back? Well, I think this is the great failing of the sequel. So this does not bring Ira back. It's not the great. It's not very. It's nothing. <laughs> like, it's nowhere near as good as this. It's like fine. It still has the three leads. So it's enough to keep you going. And I think Holland Taylor is also maybe back as the as the sister, and um, it's I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen that one too. That would be I I'm just gonna I'm gonna find that sometime. That is so that 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 title almost sounds more familiar to me than Romancing the Stone did when before I watched this. For a long time, it would be streaming, and this one wouldn't be. So I wonder if there's like a weird rights thing with that where i don't know i don't know if i don't know enough about the behind the scenes of like if it switched studios again it's been a really long time since i've seen jewel of the nile Mm. and i've only seen it once i didn't like it very much it's like again i was entertained by it i enjoyed it but yeah zemeckis isn't back which i think really shows i see and i think that that one i think i also vaguely remember that one being engaging a lot more with like egyptian stereotypes which you know that is that's not not great yeah we, we we can like you said, the, the Columbia stuff in this, it just feels kind of just like how many 80s things were. It's just like it's South America. It's in the jungle mostly anyway. It's in it's in like nature. But that, yeah, you can't you can't run into stuff like that. It becomes less and less acceptable when it's the sequel and it's worse and a lot less people are back and it's more <laughs> and it's more problematic. Yeah, it's too but much. I mean, I think I think it's still probably I, I would not dissuade you from watching it at all, Shamus. Well, I'm for sure going to give that a shot. I'm sad Ira's not back, even though they definitely set up for Ira to be the Thanos of this <laughs> this franchise. <laughs> Absolutely. He's, he's collecting the stones, Garrett. Don't you understand? He's trying to amass the stones. The Corazon. The Jewel of the Nile. <laughs> that one doesn't have a, a fun name. It's just the Jewel I don't, of the Nile. It's, it's too I don't remember. That's don't, okay. That's okay. Long. That's okay. It's too long ago. They could, they could uh, come back. <laughs> <laughs> they could do with the third one. They Legacy could. They sequel. could. I mean, everybody's still alive. They're so old, but everybody's still alive. Yeah, they, they I, could pull it out. I am glad that, that we could talk a little bit more about the Lost City because I, I'm glad that the Lost City exists because I don't think that's a great, great movie, but it's the kind of movie we need more of where. It's taking a formula that is familiar, but adding a new twist on it. A lot of the appeal of that movie is that there are stars that you know Mm. and enjoy and you're playing with their archetypes, which is, I think, something that we don't do enough with, you know, it's a studio comedy. And I like a studio comedy that knows what to do with its stars. And it's aware enough of, you know, Sandra Bullock is a romance novelist and she gets whisked off on a journey that's like something straight out of her romance novels. And that's kind of where the similarities end. But it uses the intertextuality of assuming that you know a little bit about Romancing the Stone to have moments that mirror Mm. Romancing the Stone, but then are subverting it. 
but also totally works, I think, if you've not seen Romancing the Stone as well. Well, I truly, I would recommend Romancing the Stone to pretty much anybody that I know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of all about it, but I, I'm glad that I will have that intercontextuality when I finally, I'm never gonna, I don't think I'm gonna watch The Lost City, I'm gonna be honest with you, buddy. You should, I, dude, I, Daniel I mean, Radcliffe uh, is really good in The Lost City, and... Shane, I, you like everybody in that movie. You like, Sa- I, I don't know if you like Sandy Bullock. I like Sandy Bullock. I mean, I don't dislike um, Sandy Bullock for the most part, I don't think. You like Channing Tatum. You like Brad Pitt. You like Daniel Radcliffe. I know those things. That, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I like Romancing the Stone. Damn it. And you like Romancing the Stone. Damn it. Maybe I'll watch it with I th- you. I, I just, I feel like. If- yeah. If anything, I would put on Romancing the Stone again. I don't know. Or I'd go watch Jewel of the Nile. That's very fair. That's very fair. So, I mean, yeah, we can talk, we can talk about that another time. But that's worth, I think it's worth bringing sure. into the conversation I mean, here. If, if anybody, if you said to me, if, if there was a movie I'd never heard of and you just said, it's a little bit like Romancing the Stone, I'd, that's pretty much all you need to say at this point. Now that I have an awareness of what that even means. When, when The Lost City was coming out and you were like talking about Romancing the Stone and I was just like, great, sounds like a pretty fun time. Like I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know then, Garrett, I didn't know, but. I know. Truly. If, and I was if, trying to tell you. I, you did. And I, you probably were like, you should just check this out on your, you know, for fun or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I'll get to it or whatever, you know. Like most things, I never got around to it until it was for this show, and I regret it deeply that I didn't do it earlier, but... Well, I remember when we... I intentionally, when we did Temple of Doom for the show, knowing that you had not seen this, I did not bring up the fact that this movie is how you do Willy and Indy without it being super annoying, and they came out the same yeah. year. Wow, they did. They came out the same year. They came out the same year. Maybe is that is why I is is it just because like Temple of Doom stole all the jungle adventure thunder of that year, and like I really I only knew mostly about Temple of Doom. I think this movie's pretty well regarded. I know, like I talk to people. Not people our age, but I talk to people older than us and like people like people that were going to movies in 1984 mm. and people are like, yeah, Romantic Zone, that's a good movie. You know, like people know it and obviously had two of the biggest stars of the era. Sure, that's true. That is true. Yeah. And Danny DeVito, like Danny De- having Danny DeVito in a movie in 1984 is like having Jake Johnson in a movie. Now, <laughs> you know? Wow, that's a great comparison. But like, you know, I just like you said, like you got it from the library. I, you know, went to Blockbuster growing up. You'd, you'd think I would see the cover of that and be like, oh, I we're going to watch this. Or like, you know, I would know yeah. about it at least a little bit more than I did before yesterday. But it, it was fully under the radar for me. Maybe that was just... That my household. And you were missing out on Danny DeVito running and blindly shooting a gun behind him without looking back. It's crazy how much he, like, his physical running and, you know, indiscriminately shooting a revolver acting has not changed from Romancing the Stone (laughs) to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It was like... It was like putting on a season 17 episode of It's Always Sunny when he's running over those hills just like blasting or whatever. He does not care. It was it was weird as hell, but he's so good at it. Why would he change it anyway? His physicality in this is some of his best physical work, I think. And because that's something that's interesting about him is I think 
often he is kind of he's so glib and funny and his appearance is inherently funny mm-hmm. that i think sometimes he's not allowed to do as much physical comedy as he should because he's so good at it it's kind of, it's a little bit like steve martin in a way where i feel like steve martin is like one of the great physical comedians mm. but he's also so good at just delivering zingers that you you can just like why go through the process of figuring out how to give him physical comedy to do when you can just like lob a softball yeah, zinger so, at him. God, if it's the '80s and you put him in a fedora style hat, it's game over pretty much. Like he can he can slay it any which way. But this, you know, I keep saying like he was such a background character, and it's not like he doesn't have like individual scenes as like the focus of of a lot of stuff. But he doesn't really affect much in the movie and by the time we get to that third act and he just kind of like disappears after that incredible boat bit and not me not <laughs> knowing that there was a sequel i was just like well what the like he's just gone then like he doesn't there's never anything with the resolution of those two cousins but i'm, I'm happy well, he to gets know. arrested you know but so like, i guess i don't know it, it feels like i i not know again not knowing that that wasn't the end of that character i was like i wanted more of an end for that character i guess is what i'm saying i also feel like if you looked at that character in a script and were like well he doesn't need more of an ending than getting arrested because he's just you know it's not that it's not written to be funny but i think that that character and that role are elevated a lot by the fact that danny devito is the one playing yeah maybe that's what it is they just didn't understand how one could perform that character and steal the show like he does until it happened and then well i guess again spawned a sequel not not too shabby i suppose but and and the resolution payoffs for like the other characters i think are really strong where when she comes around that corner and there's the boat and he's wearing the gator boots and it just all all comes together without a word without a word being spoken you understand everything and that's such an elegant nice way to end that movie and then them going off on the cavernous New York street that is deep for some reason. Yeah, so, so empty. Also, I mean, I love watching the people on the actual New York City street in the background of that shot, just, like, watching the shoot from the sidewalk. I mm-hmm. thought that was fun. But then, like you're saying, watching them sail down onto their next adventure, well, that sax just wails on the soundtrack. <laughs> I'm just like, ugh. Great ending. I I really, for a second, I was, you know, I guess I forgot what movie I was watching and I thought they might end it a little sad or ambiguous, but like, nope. Mm-hmm. God damn it. Couldn't do that to her. Couldn't do that to him. It was, it was a great way to, to wrap it up with a little bow there. Absolutely. Also, one last thing when you bring up the sax, I think this soundtrack... And the Midnight Run soundtrack are friends. I think they're super similar. <laughs> Wait, did, did, did Alan Sylvester do the Midnight Run soundtrack? No, I almost think Hans Zimmer did the Midnight Run soundtrack. Shut up, Garrett. Just, just, Hold on, go, I'm looking it up. Here. I'm looking it up. That would blow my mind, truly. I'm, I, I really think he did. John really Williams do. does the Midnight No, Run. sorry, it's Danny Elfman. It's Danny Elfman. That's, you could, you could forgive me mixing no, those up. No, that's still kind of a little bit surprising. That Maybe I need to rewatch Midnight Run. I think all of us need to rewatch Midnight Run all the I think like it should just be there should be a channel that you could just turn on and it's playing Midnight Run. When I get to be an old old man, that's going to be like my Fox News where it's just like on all day. It's just going to be a loop of Midnight Run and I'll I'll be pretty happy with that probably. And Romancing the Stone. Yeah, I'll be like now. yeah, back and forth. It'll be an endless marathon old man live stream of Romancing the Stone. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'll just talk about how the music is friends as a reference to a podcast from 2024. And they'll all go, yes, the the pop culture reference podcast, the most the most <laughs> famous podcast ever. And the, oh, that one that base... dethroned Joe Rogan. Yeah, of course, yeah. the pop culture reference podcast. It all started that one fateful day when they reviewed *Romancing the Stone*. And everybody <laughs> was like, "Wow, finally a podcast brave enough to do it." Oh my God, we're gonna wear our gator skin boots to our uh, Hollywood star ceremony. Are the first one ever for podcasts, of course. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I think we've officially run out of things to say about Racing the Stone. And I enjoy talking about this great movie with you. And I I'm, I'm don't think Argyle is going to live up to the thing that we covered in preparation Man. for it. But I straight up almost at the end of this segment, even though I introed it as such, I almost forgot this was for Argyle. There's no way that Argyle is as good as Romancing the Stone. I'm sorry to call my shot right now, but there's no way. There's no way. Although dumb action stuff has been really surprising us lately. So there, there's oh, always that's hope. That's true. I, I can't, yeah, okay. That's fair. I'll, I'll see you all next week on the main segment when I definitely backpedal this statement. But why don't we go ahead and move on over to our pop culture reference. Let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're talking about the massive 2024 video game layoffs. Gaming industry professionals already started off the year with major blow when Zach Aftra voted in favor of permissions to allow studios to use AI voice generation over human voice acting talent. But this mass wave of layoffs across multiple publishers and studios only adds to the already bursting game industry bubble. Though small game developing teams that specialize in indie titles are gaining more recognition than ever in the gaming landscape, most AAA studios have hundreds if not thousands of dedicated employees that collectively work on projects that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make and generate billions on a global scale. Some gaming industry heads have cited the overinflation of these staffing positions during the COVID-19 pandemic as a source of this now widespread issue, calling these layoffs something of a correction to that problem. Others speculate that the dwindling growth of the global gaming industry in 2023, the mounting criticisms of fans about unfinished products hitting the market, and the continually outrageous production budgets of AAA projects are the proof that the course of the game production industry is going in a critically damaging direction at the cost of hard-working professionals. So far, about 26 game studios, publishers, and other gaming industry professionals have announced layoffs, adding up to almost 4,000 jobs lost in the first month of 2024. Most notably, after the rocky acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft just three months ago, 1,900 positions are to be terminated across Xbox, Activision Blizzard, and ZeniMax Media. Game engine designer and tech giant Unity also announced 1,800 in-house layoffs as part of their planned reset of the company, and is the largest single loss of personnel in the company's history. 30% of Call of Duty developer Sledgehammer Games positions and 50% of Destroy All Humans and TMNT The Last Ronin developer Black Forest Games positions are also being cut. So this has been in the last three and a half weeks, pretty much. All of these are being announced left and right. It's, I mean, I don't know if it's truly about an overstaffing problem because of the pandemic and things like that, but 
it's a very polarizing couple of years for gaming releases. It's either things that are entirely overbloated, over budget, uh, not made with quality in mind. Things like like a Modern Warfare Three or a Gollum. You know, I almost want to play <laughs> that horrible looking game. But you know, there's also been incredible titles that seem to be focusing more on things like single player, story driven experiences that they don't generate. There's no battle pass for God of War or The Last of Us things like that but people are, are gravitating more towards that i think a lot more than ever right now and, and people that make things like call of duty you know activision sledgehammer they're really feeling the heat on that i think a lot more now than ever definitely agree and i think it's also interesting i was just reading an article a few months ago before these layoffs happened about how even though gaming is still you know like the most popular pastime globally and all this stuff that there has been a significant hit in you know that there was an artificial bubble created by covid in terms of like player bases and the amount that people were willing to spend mm -hmm. on video games and i think the fact that this new generation of consoles came out in the midst of everybody suddenly having a bunch of time to spend at home and wanting to look for digital outlets probably compounded that so i think that it's also like definitely a indication of Kind of like we've been seeing with the streaming industry lately, a bunch of studios having the hubris to be like, this'll last forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the idea of like 10 seasons of a roadmap for a multiplayer game that is free, but, you know, 75% of content is locked behind a paywall that you have to engage with. It's That's like the most popular model games. Is even something like we talked about the new suicide, uh, the upcoming Suicide Squad game and how that was like nabbed by higher-ups demanding things like a battle pass and a, a live service games as a service format that they've been inching more towards it's it's just bad news bears when it gets to a, a boiling point like this but the people who are really suffering are all the dedicated people that are working on projects like that getting laid off in mass it is not looking great no it isn't but we will definitely i mean who knows if this will be the end of these i suspect it won't be but it's been happening so much that we felt like we had to do kind of a larger overview of what's going on and what where the trends are heading and we will be continuing to monitor what's going on in the game industry as it develops but what do you say we head on over and save the rec center? Let's save it, Seamus. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly rec recommendations. Garrett, what do you got for me this week? Well, at time of recording, you know, it's the end of January, which, as you know, is when I'm always trying to run and catch up and round up all the 2023, or the movies of the previous year, in this case 2023, movies that I did not see during the course of the year. And last night, I went on to Stars and I watched the new adaptation of Judy Bloom's prolific novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And I certainly am not the target demographic for that film, and I found it tremendously moving. I thought it was great. I think it's honestly a, one of the best movies of 2023. It is effortlessly 
and utterly charming with a fantastic Rachel McAdams performance that probably could have taken America Ferreira's Oscar mm. nomination position as Best Supporting Actress and a star turn from Abby Ryder Fortson who is playing Margaret and I looked up today I was like she seems to be really familiar but she's so young I don't know what I must know her from she is the daughter in the Ant-Man movies oh oh oh, oh. wait the first daughter or the second daughter like, like the first daughter like the little wow okay okay she's tremendous and shows an incredible emotional range i think for an actor of her age and is holding toe-to-toe with you know her parents in the movie are rachel McAdams and benny Safdie, who are two pretty good freaking actors yeah you can say that again and kathy bates is also doing a a great job as the grandmother and i i was just really you know i i went in expecting to like it and to be charmed and it was by kelly freeman craig who is also the director of edge of 17 so i was like that's a girls coming of age movie that i enjoyed quite a lot a few years ago and so i expected to like this but i was really blown away i think it's an instant classic i can't believe it wasn't discussed more i think frankly rachel mcadams has been under discussed in the awards conversation and it's really worth going to check out if you don't have stars go to your local library and, and find it because i really really enjoyed it well yeah i will definitely check that out i had my time with judy bloom back in the day i never read are you there got it to be margaret i don't know what it's about i have just made that uh, i've just said that line about a hundred billion times in my life as some kind of referential joke that i do not get so i think maybe now it's time to finally get Get with the times. Go try that out. I love pretty much everyone in the cast that you just said. And it, it'll be weird to see Benny Safdie do like a, a what sounds like a very wholesome kind of film like that. I, I feel like I'm used to him in more gritty stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, he's great at I was a little bit skeptical of that because sometimes he shows up in something I'm like, I really need Benny Safdie in this. <laughs> like, well, I'm glad I'm glad that didn't break your break your experience with this movie. Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoyed it a lot. But what do you have this week, Seamus? This week, I have been enjoying the musical stylings of Osamu Sato, the Japanese digital media artist, most famous for his creation of the PS1 game LSD Dream Emulator. Are you familiar with this, Garrett? I am familiar. I didn't. I don't know the guy, but I am familiar with that. The, with the existence of the game yes okay good well he has been an incredible digital artist since the 80s he does incredible photography series he obviously does interactive digital art like his ps1 and early point and click adventure games but i really want to shout out his music today i've been listening to like pretty much his entire discography nonstop this week and it's very it's very much what you would find in something like an lsd dream emulator style game very frantic digital heavy beats that are more abstract than what a traditional piece of music would be but it really puts you in this dreamy trance that he finds himself in a lot with his his individual music specific creations i i kept trying to describe it to other people this week as like it's like you're having a dream where you're late for something kind of and that doesn't sound like an enjoyable time but if you're like if you're really getting into the groove of working on something or you need to focus on something it's it's like sound it's like dream soundscapes a lot of the time and it's just a very almost geometry feeling kind of 
rhythms that he gets into there it's like you can feel the shapes and the the ideas that he's working with so i wanted to specifically shout out lsd and remixes his work on his very famous lsd dream emulator video game and also of the same year 1998 lucy in the sky with dynamites it is it's a kind of a lesser known one but it is it's a lot more groovy than frantic which i feel like a lot of his other stuff turns out to be a lot of the time i mean very enjoyable still but definitely those two i'm highlighting for you this week well that sounds like something i would enjoy and i'm I, i'm definitely going to look at it a lot of the time i give you i'm like yeah seamus that sounds nice <laughs> um but i think i genuinely will go check that out that is of great interest to me and i will i will request that you send me a link directly because i'm that guy but <laughs> no you got it man you got it it's you get you get lost in it you can end up listening to a whole album and and you almost don't even realize it until it, it wraps up it's it's definitely worth checking out so i'll i'll hook it up for you but I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show on TikTok, Twitter, or Instagram, you can find us at PCR underscore podcast. Email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Find us on YouTube, like us on Facebook, and interact with us in any way you can on any platform. It really helps the show out. Next week, we will, as previously forecast, be covering the most discussed movie of the year, Seamus, Argyle, which <laughs> I, you know, I am looking forward to, I think, more than most people are, and I agree that it probably isn't going to be any Romancing the Stone, but I'm excited to find out. I am too, man. I, I'm looking forward to this crazy-looking cast. John Cena is there, from what I hear. You know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm excited, very much so. You can't see it, but I'm waving my hand in front of my face. <laughs> God, yeah, I wouldn't be able to see it, would I, Garrett? No, you, here's the thing, Seamus, you can't see me. Oh, God, yeah. What we love John Cena for, his wrestling career, you know? That's like, what I've always said. You know how, you know wristbands. what a huge wrestling fan <laughs> WWE heads over here. Uh, well, everybody, we will not see you next week. Adios, amigos. That just works because they were in Colombia in this movie. <laughs>